We talked about happiness, and I wanted to actually talk more about happiness, but then I changed my mind and, and wanted to come at it a different way. I, I think whenever we talk about anything in Scripture or in the Christian life, if we're, if we're not careful, we can talk about it in a way that detaches it from the center, and the center is, is usually what drives and gives meaning to the thing itself. Does that make sense? So happiness is something we don't talk about enough because we're kind of afraid that it's a bad thing. Um, and there's a godly happiness, a moral happiness, a contentment, a satisfaction, a joy that's appropriate for, for believers. And God talks about it unabashedly throughout the scriptures. But if we just take it in isolation and kind of put it in the, the Petri dish and try and analyze it too much that way, we, we miss the fact that it's, it's an outgrowth of our relationship with God. In other words, it's the gospel, it's the good news that we've been reconciled with God that ultimately undergirds and lays a foundation for Christian happiness. Does that make sense? And so I, I wanted to talk more about it envy and just different kinds of things that rob us of joy and happiness. But then what I really decided was I want to come back to the gospel story and kind of track it that way and reconnect it. And so what we're going to do is work through Galatians 5 today. And you've got a printout that Kip was good enough to do and put in uh, your bulletins. This is, uh, it says from the NET version, it's actually the N-E-T version uh, the New English Translation, not the Internet Version, not, not Al Gore's Bible, right? So this is from the NET Version. But so if you'll take that out, we're going to uh, read through some of this and then we'll kind of dive in. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, and that's what he's saying the yoke of slavery is, is basically symbolically being connected to the law. So Christ has set us free. The law makes you a slave. Um, and if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. In other words, if you trust in something other than Christ for your salvation then Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. You're saved by faith in Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So if you look for something else as the path or the road to salvation, Jesus will be of no benefit to you at all. Verse 3, and I testify again that every man who lets himself be circumcised, circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be declared righteous by the law have been alienated from Christ, you have fallen away from grace. And then here's, if you want to put in brackets, verse 5, it's, a, it's one of the great kind of gospel verses. And it says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait expectantly for the hope of righteousness. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait expectantly for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision carries any weight. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Now, if you want, in that dead space right there, just write the word verb. Verb. What, uh, what is going on with this uh, verse here is you see faith working 
through love. Faith for, for Paul in this book of Galatians is not some kind of weird static reality. Uh, it's not this inert thing. Faith works. Um, faith is active. Faith is alive. Faith is tied to obedience. So the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Verse 7, let's just skip that chunk. Let's go down to verse 13. Verse 13 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, if you can, underline through love. Where else did we see that, that phrase, through love? Verse 6, so underline that in verse 6 as well. And you can double underline it. And by the way, when you're doing Bible study, if you see repeated phrases, you can develop a way of underlining it or boxing it so that when you go back to that that text, you can see those repeated phrases over and over. It's an inductive Bible study method so that you can see the themes as they emerge in Scripture because it matters. So there's something really interesting when Paul uses so closely here this same idea of through love, you've got faith working through love, and through love you're serving one another. And what I'm going to argue is that these things are really an amalgam. They're an organic whole, faith, love, and obedience or service, and that you can't really extricate one from the other, that they're all kind of wrapped together as a whole. And the through love kind of sets that up. Verse 14 For the whole law can be summed up in a single commandment. Namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. However, if you continually bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you cannot do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, envying, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. I am warning you, as I had warned you before, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you want, um, next to the list of the flesh, you can write 16. There are 16 things that are listed there uh, in the NET version. Interesting thing is if you go to a bunch of different versions, sometimes you'll have 16, sometimes you'll have as many as 19 things that are listed for the flesh, the way the Greek comes out, or how you choose to kind of render that in the English language. Um, So you have anywhere from usually 15 to 19 things of the flesh. It's always nine um, for the the fruit of the Spirit. But you get this really fascinating thing of of twice as many things of the flesh, really trying to help... um, flesh it out, you know, and, and uh, give you the whole picture of what it looks like when you're in error and living according to a sinful nature or according to the world. And then there's these things, uh, these nine things that are traits. Um, 
character traits, uh, fruit that would grow up out of you as you stay in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So that when you're in close contact with the Holy Spirit, when you're living by the Spirit, when you're walking in the Spirit, that over time, the natural thing, you almost can't stop it from happening, is that fruit would begin to be born out of you. Now, there's, also, uh, there's obviously a, a close parallel in this to chapter 15 of John where, John, uh, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you just, I had a, a, a seminary professor who doubled up in the kind of masters of, like the MDiv department. And he also worked in the psychology department and uh, named John Coe. And he was a fascinating teacher and he came in and he actually had us close our eyes and visualize John 15 for about a half an hour. And it was, it was a really profound experience. And it was, and so if you want, you can actually close your eyes. But if you visualize this vine and this vine has coming up through it, life. It has the water, it has the, 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 the resources, the nutrients that naturally come up through it. And that if you have a branch that comes out of that vine, that branch cannot help the fact that into it comes this life-giving nourishment. And then out of it comes this fruit. It's almost, so John Coe would say like, you know, with your fingers outstretched, just literally picture as more and more nourishment and resource comes in and you're programmed in a DNA kind of way that, that the byproduct of that kind of feeding would be fruit, just picture that you can't stop the fruit from coming out. I mean, it just naturally, slowly comes out of the edges. But then as you're picturing that, very quickly picture yourself being severed or ripped or, or broken off from the vine and all of that nourishment, all of that energy, all of that life-giving stuff that was a part of your connection with the vine now just ends and there's nothing more coming in. And you picture being thrown to the dusty ground and what happens to the fruit or anything else living that's a part of you, it dies. It withers up. It goes away. And Jesus follows this kind of um, analogy, metaphor, by saying, listen, remain in me. Like, remain in me. Like, this is, I'm imploring you, remain in me as I've remained in the Father. And you do this how? You do this by obeying me. And he goes on later to define obedience as love, the same thing that Paul's talking about here in Galatians. He says, you obey me and you love. You have this right kind of disposition to, to me and others. You're oriented appropriately to God and others. And as you obey that, you're with me. Because if you're not obeying my, my fundamental command here, then you're not really with me, right? Um, when you really care about something, say you're, you're trying to disciple your kids on some, something, and somebody in society is out there and they're continually trying to teach your kid to do the opposite, right? You know what I'm talking about? Is that person with you or against you? Is there any kind of intimacy or deep relationship or teamwork or collaboration with that other person? There's something fascinating about the extension of who we are that, that we're very caught up in this enlightenment thinking that I am 
I am my body. I'm my body, and I'm located right here. And that, when you want to talk about personal identity, it's, it's this. It's me. That's really all you get. But I'm so much more than that, right? I, I'm also made up of my will and my mission in life. Like, who I, I exist to be is a fundamental part of who Ken is. And if you're working against my mission, you're not just working against it. You're working against me. That's why Jesus always was saying, like, you're either for me or against me. If you're not working and laboring where I'm pouring all my heart and energy, time and attention and passion, if you're not working for that, then, then very literally you're working against that. You're either for me or against me. The other thing is, is I'm, I'm made up of my relationships and my loves. You can't separate me from... Uh, from my kids. You want to love me? Love my kids, right? You want to um, not love me or, or make an enemy out of me? Be against my kids. You know what I mean? It's, I'm made up of so much more. Does that make sense? And Jesus is saying, listen, you have to understand what it means to be with me if you're going to remain in me. And so this is what it means. It means obey me, and ultimately that means love. Now, I tell you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may, uh, may be complete. When you align yourself with me, remain in me, and you're able to bear fruit and, and be a part of my mission in the world, the natural, fitting, and appropriate end of that is a deep and abiding satisfaction. Joy is a fitting and natural end of discipleship, of our relationship with Christ. And so we see it in John 15, and we see it here in the fruit of the Spirit, that when we remain with the Spirit, that love and joy and peace, and the good, the things we all want to be, right? I mean, there's something about watching, um, like, the old John Wayne movies. I, I mean, there's probably better examples, but this is, this is what I got. Um, I drink coffee. Um, When you see old character, you know, the, the character virtues that, you know, that my grandfather used to talk about, you know, better to die and keep your word than, than ever go back on your word, right? I'm um, listening to this biography of Booker T. Washington, um, up from slavery. He was, he was born as a slave. Uh, and then when he was about seven, eight, nine, Emancipation Proclamation happened, et cetera, et cetera. But he's just telling his story, and it's fascinating. And his character just comes through in so many ways. And he was talking about you know, all these challenges with money, trying to get schooling. And he was uh, working at a restaurant in a hotel one time. And, and uh, he'd spent all summer trying to make $16 to be able to do the, the next semester's tuition. And then one time he finds $10 underneath the table. And he... Uh, and he looks at it and he goes, oh my gosh, this like, you know, covers the whole thing. But he goes to the proprietor, the owner of the, of the thing, and he says, since it wasn't my restaurant, I felt it my duty to go let him know what was found. And he goes, and he was really excited, um, as excited as I was, and, and promptly told me since it was his establishment that the money belonged to him and he proceeded to keep it. Um, and he goes, I was tremendously disappointed, but I've never been bitter um, in my life, and I've never been disappointed um, 
I, I, you know, I simply kind of moved on and, and always thought it better to do what was honorable and to keep my word than to try and live, you know, um, cut corners to, to make things work in terms of living. And I'm just listening to this and, you know, and, and I'm hollering back to the kids, kids, are you listening? <laughs> you know, um, it's, you know, old character, you know, John Wayne movies character. And when we see that, when we really see it, we know it, don't we? And we always kind of go, man, I wish that was true of me. Like, I want to be that person. Like, I want, I, want, I want to exist in that spot where I know I'm that person. And these, these things, the fruit of the Spirit, those are those things, right? It's, it's the center point where you know you're aligned and you're grounded and you know who you are and you know that you have values and that you can trust those values and that you wouldn't want to be any other person with any other character traits. These are the things that when we have them, we have all that we really want in life, right? But somehow we let commercials and, and pictures of, of like the size of your TV screen of Whoppers you know, tell us that we're hungry, you know, and um, that that's really what's going to make us happy. But it's not. It's these things. So the first thing I want to do is kind of really hammer home where goodness comes from, where happiness comes from, where goodness comes from, where, where is that located and what drives it. So if you go back, look at verse um, 16. Galatians 5, verse 16 says this, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you cannot do what you want. If I were to draw this, you have um, two centers of gravity here. They're, they're, wow, it's not symmetrical. Um, you have two centers of gravity, like a gravitational pull. And, and Paul is saying, listen, you keep in step with the Spirit um, because ultimately here is where you're going to find all good things. But if you don't, if you let yourself get pulled over to here where the flesh wants to have you. It says in uh, Genesis um, the beginning of Genesis, right, kind of as, as everything's unfolding, it says, behold, sin is crouching at your do uh, door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Isn't that an unbelievable mental picture? Sin is crouching at your do uh, door, and it desires to have you. It's trying to pull you in, but you must somehow master it and go the other direction. Okay, these two are opposed to each other. Now, I think opposition, the word opposition, so where it says opposed to each other, I want you to double underline that in verse 17. These are in opposition to each other. The, the idea of opposition, I don't know that we ever really grapple with the implications of that, what's really meant by that. I um, used to visit a juvenile home it was it was a it was like a juvenile prison it was for um 
severe offenders, you know, uh, children who had committed murder and, and things like that, but were of such a young age that they weren't going to the federal pen and they were in this place. And I started visiting there and I had this young guy who's a part of the gang, got in real early and had basically been there since I think he was 12 or 13 and he was really rough. Um, and they had different factions in that prison, and they were in opposition to each other. And what that meant was every other week when I would go, he'd be in some kind of um, lockdown because every chance they got, they were fighting kind of in the, in the prison yard, the schoolyard. But they were, I mean, dead in opposition to each other. And they, uh, they tell you, you know, when you go visit here, you, you just use your first name. You never give your full name, and, and you don't give your address um, or anything like that. And as this uh, kid got older, he was going to be moved over to the state pen. And uh, so I met with him before they moved him over, and I gave him my address so that he could write me. And, uh, and so he did. About a year later, he did. He wrote me and, and said hey, I want you to do this for me. And his big long letter with instructions for how he was going to use me to like um, do his outside communication with his gang. And, and I thought, oh, that's really scary. You know, if I say no to this guy, he might get really mad, you know. Um, well, shoot, like he's got my address. You know, they, they should really tell you not to give your address to people. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I began to grapple with, like, wow, this is, this is opposition, okay? Um, I also grew up in, in uh, the late 70s and 80s, and that was Cold War time, right? And you remember every movie uh, in that period was, was U.S. against Russia? Like, every movie, Rocky um, IV was Rocky against Ivan Drago, and it's like the whole movie is the symbolism of America versus Russia. And it's like the whole thing is these two worlds. There might, might have actually been a song in that movie, um, Two Worlds Collide. I, I, like, I have a song going through my head. Anyone else? Two worlds? Uh, anyways. But it's like two worlds are colliding. And it's like the U.S. versus Russia. The same was true of uh, the Rambo movies. Um, the one where he's in Afghanistan and it's against the, the Russians and you never know which Rambo movie is which because uh, he has his shirt off for the whole movie and all of them. You can't differentiate <laughs> which one it is. Um, but the same thing. So all of Sylvester Stallone's movies, you know, were like U.S. against, you know, Russia and they were just in opposition to each other, right? And so I have this picture of, of how absurd it would be to be walking in Disneyland with like the U.S. in one hand as your mom and Russia in the other hand as your dad and you're skipping down Disneyland, you know, as if one's mom and one's dad and it's like it just doesn't, doesn't work. You know what I'm talking about? Like you can't picture a kid in Disneyland holding on to one thing with one hand and another thing with another hand and skipping happily along if those two things are fundamentally opposed or in opposition to each other. You can't picture that... Oh, just a girl's easier. Um, you can't picture... 
the girl skipping along with, with a hand in each corner. Can you? I mean, when we're talking about opposition, we're significantly talking about two realities that don't harmonize, can't harmonize, where you have to choose one or the other. I said it before, but Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, where Jesus here uses money as the symbol of the world or fleshly desires, and God is the other. But you can't harmonize these two things. You can't give your address out. You can't make it work. It's in opposition. Um, that's why this passage, when Jesus looks at Peter and like barks at him so quickly, when Peter's like, oh no, you don't have to die. Like we don't have to go with that game plan. And, and Jesus looks at him and, and says, get behind me, Satan. And you're like, wow, Jesus was kind of harsh sometimes. You know, like mellow out. Jesus, that's, I mean, did you really have to go there? You know, we're just having a conversation here. And, and, but Jesus was always truthful, and he was helping bring other people into an understanding of truth that, listen, if you're not working for the mission, you're working against the mission. And when I'm saying I've got to suffer and die, and you're saying, well, maybe not, you're, you're really trying to say something other than the mission, and if you're saying something other than the mission, it's not a matter of degrees. It's as if you're all the way on the other end of the spectrum and you're working against me. Get behind me, Satan. You understand that? Um, it's a fascinating thing that we have to choose the one and not the other, that we can't harmonize. The, I think Americans were so pragmatic that we, whether we think about it or not, we naturally try to sit on the fence. We naturally try to sit on the fence. The minute you draw a line, people are going to try and say, how close the line can I get? I mean, you learn this as a youth pastor, you know, boys and girls. And, and it's like, feels very dangerous. So it's like, okay, well, let's draw some lines. And the minute you draw the lines, it's like, oh, okay. Well, then I'll go right to here. Well, what about, you know, and, and you've just created this weird dynamic where everybody's trying to say, how can I split the middle? How can I be on the fence? How can I play with fire but not get burned, right? And I, I, uh, I saw this in my own faith early on, that it was, it was really saying, you know, Jesus is a pretty forgiving guy. I was taught that. Um, I was kind of taught no matter what I did, he would just erase it. Jesus was the guy that just walked around with a big sin eraser. That's, that's what he lives to do, and that's what he really enjoys. Let me give him a little bit of sin um, so that he has something to do with this time, you know, because he, he's walking around with that big sin eraser. And, and I kind of like had this view of Jesus. I'm like, so without offending him too bad or at least saying sorry soon enough, let me kind of figure out how I can how I can. Um, do some of these things I want to do, um, but still kind of call myself a, a, a Christian or a believer. You know what I'm saying? Um, we have that in us, I think, as Americans, or maybe it's just my personality type. Like if I'm on a, on a, a windy freeway and there's no other cars coming, I just drive in a straight line. I, uh, it's very logical. 
to me. Um, my wife, however, um, would would drive in uh, the wines. Like if, if we go to California and they're like, do you have any fruit in the car? I say no. No, no matter what is in the car. <laughs> it's just easier. Um, it's easier just to, you know, leave me alone. Uh, I'm just going to California and I'm not going to bring any bugs, you know, whatever. Um, my wife has to say, I've got a bag of cherries, you know, that I bought at, at Walmart, you know, and, and, uh, and then they'll, they'll say the same thing to her they said to me, you know, move along. Uh, these are not the droids we're looking for. Um, but uh, and she gets the same results. She's just a lot more honest. Um, so maybe, maybe the problem here is me, and this is all just therapy. But uh, we, can't, we, we can't sit on the fence. That's not the thing that's, that's given to us with regard to the world or, or the flesh and the Holy Spirit here. And, and we have to begin to understand that when these things are in opposition, we can't skip along in between the two and hold hands as if um, the U.S. is, is on, on one hand and, and Russia's on the other and that we're all just one big happy family. It just doesn't fit. All right. So if we go down to verse 24, and I don't know how... I mean, there's a lot we could pop open here, and we'll see how much we have time for. But verse 24 says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So underline crucified. Or have crucified. And if we live by, and underline we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with, underline behave in accordance with the Spirit. Verse 26, let us not become, and underline let us not become conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. Why am I having you underline those? What's the common thing between those things I had you underline? It's the action, right? Um, There's something that that I've been struggling with since age 22 when I really sold my life out to Christ and entered into this Protestant world that we have. There's a battle that rages in a riddle that, that we never make sense of that, that goes by this phrase, faith versus works. Faith versus works, right? So what we do is we put faith over here and works over here. And we think we're saying the same thing as Paul, who was saying, listen, if you get circumcised again, then Christ is of no value to you. You're not going to earn your righteousness apart from Christ or through something else other than your faith in Christ. Does that make sense? What we're doing here, though, is we're making this one passive and this one active, and this one becomes about mental ascent, and this one becomes about obedience. Do you guys see how the problem's beginning to emerge? So now it's, 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 um, 
I either am going to get saved by faith through grace in Christ um, plus nothing, which means nothing. It means I, I don't know what I do because if I do, then I'm doing. So I can't do because then I'm not like faithing. So I don't know what to do, but I'm getting it right. Which, which, is, which, which is cool, I, um, which sounds good to me. Or if I talk about obedience or something active, then I'm talking about works. And if I'm talking about works, all of a sudden I'm not talking about faith. I'm talking about something different. And, and, then, and then I'm like, I'm legalistic. And then I'm on the bad side. So forget that there's all these injunctions in Scripture to be obedient and to love, which seems like doing, um, I have to kind of just say, well, those are good things, but I can't really tell anyone about those or, or make it sound imperative that they do them. I got to just talk about faith, which is nothing, and hope that they end up doing some of those things without me telling them to do them, because if I tell them to do them, it'll get confusing. Is that fair at all? Um, so here's the problem. The problem is what's really going on is Paul is talking about Christ. And he's talking about the law. And he's saying faith works in both of these. In other words, either you're trusting the law in yourself or you're trusting, and by the word, trust and faith are the same word, really. Or either you're trusting Christ. Does that make sense? So trust and faith operate in both of these. Obedience operates in both of these. So either you're going to obey the law that you're trusting for your salvation or you're going to obey Christ who you're trusting for salvation. Okay? To be obedient to Christ's commands is not to trust in something else for your salvation. Let me say that again. To be obedient to Christ and Christ's commands is certainly not to trust something else for your salvation. Does that make sense? That's why um, Paul, who can say, listen, don't trust circumcision and don't obey the law, can turn right around and say, oh, by the way, make sure faith working through love Hey, by the way, the whole law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And he can say, serve one another. And then he can get all active on us down here and say, um, look, uh, live by the Spirit. Um, behave in accordance with. Let us not become conceited. He's talking about being active in our discipleship. And that being active and sold out and pouring all your heart and energy into your discipleship, your following of Jesus, is, is not only 
right, but it's what we're supposed to be. It's not, really, not only okay, but it's, it's, it's right. It's what we're supposed to be doing. Paul would never look at the extreme selling out to Jesus and being where he's at and doing what he's doing and submitting to his wishes and desires and being obedient. He would never see that as somehow the same as the law. The law for him as a, as a Pharisee was a ceremonial identification with a religious kind of sect or group or, or a kind of category by our external flesh and kind of um, ritualistic behavior. And he's saying if you think those gymnastics or those kinds of external things really are going to work for you, then Jesus, who's going to make your heart new, has, of, has no value for you. Has no value. But if you realize that whether you're, you're circumcised as a Jew or whether you're uncircumcised as a Gentile, that all of that really doesn't matter because it's about circumcision of the heart and it's about trusting Christ for your salvation. He says that now, so that's where it's got to go. But active and obedience are not the same as the law. Does that make sense? Um, I did a seminar this week at a, at a conference, and, and I had a lot more time than I did here or do here. But there's another riddle that's a riddle because we first start with faith is inactive and, and works as active. I mean, that, that's where we go wrong. So if you turn to real quick to Genesis chapter 22. We talked about this a number of weeks ago with Abraham and Isaac. But the first time the word obedience shows up in scripture, Abraham has been willing to now take the promise that he had in his son Isaac. He was promised that he was going to be the father of many nations. And he's now willing to take that son where he can see, man, I've got this error. And I can see that this could happen through him. And God's like, yeah, now take Isaac and sacrifice him. I'm te- you know, and he didn't know this, but he was testing Abraham's faith. His faith, okay? If faith is inactive or inert, it's just, I trust you, God. There's no need to test it. God was testing whether the faith was actually real insofar as Abraham would act on it. Faith is a verb. And so we see at the end here, and uh, as God is rewarding Abraham for his faith and, and that he passed the test, so to speak, and he says, surely you're going to have all these descendants. And then chapter 22, verse 18, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's why Paul is able to write in, in the book of Galatians about how it doesn't matter about circumcision because you don't have to become a Jew first to then come to Jesus. You can come straight to Jesus without the gymnastics, okay? Um, and, through, and, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. First time in scripture the word obey shows up. But I thought God was testing Abraham's faith. What you see is that faith and obedience, trust and obedience are really somehow connected. If I say I trust you, is that trust shown more true the more I risk? 
I trust you, man. You're going to catch me. Like, I'm getting close to the edge. You're going to catch me, right? I trust you. Trust is made manifest the greater the risk we're willing to endure or the greater the sacrifice we're willing to engage in. Does that make sense? So God says, I'm going to test your faith. Do you really believe me that if I tell you to go sacrifice your son that I'm going to somehow work it all out? Do you really believe that? Let's see. Go sacrifice your son. Abraham does. God says, because you've obeyed me, now I'm going to do this. So here's where we see it get fulfilled all the way in the New Testament. So the book of James. Now James comes along. James says this about faith and works. He says, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Boy, we're really playing with fire here. We're talking about salvation and the good news, right? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes in daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. Hey, brother, I hope it goes well for you, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? Your words are hollow, they're empty. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Hey, God, I totally believe that if I were to go sacrifice Isaac, um, that you'd bring him back from the dead. That's what Hebrews said, is that, that Abraham literally believed if it took that, that, that God would do it. Like Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, somehow God would bring him back from the dead because the promise of God um, was inviolate, right? So, um, hey, God, I believe even if I sacrificed him, he'd come back from the dead. That seems like a little bit of a, I don't know, waste of time because either way we're going to end up where you are faithful and I trust that you're faithful. And uh, Isaac and I, were going to the ball game this weekend. Um, let's just save the hassle here. I trust you. I trust you. Right? God's like, no, that's, that's not trust. Trust that risks nothing, uh, will walk nowhere, has no stomach for obedience, that's not trust. Abraham, are you willing to sacrifice Isaac, right? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If we really think faith is about mental assent, God, I believe you exist. Thank you for being willing to save me through Jesus. Um, even Satan believes God exists. I mean, there's nothing too profound in, in just acknowledging that truth statement that God exists. And so James is calling this out. This is kind of complacent Christianity, right? James is going, so you believe God exists. Hey, that's great. That's not faith, though. That's just acquiescing or acknowledging a true statement about the cosmos. And he's saying, so you think um, that's faith. No, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. 
Okay, so if you're still arguing with me, says James, he says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? I'll, I'll take the argument even further. And now he brings Abraham in. He says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. I mean, this is mind-blowing stuff. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Because you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. That sounds so heretical. That's why Luther in the Reformation in the early 1500s called James a right strawy epistle. And he put it to kind of um, the ta- uh, appendix in his Bible. He kind of moved it to the back. Because for, for Luther coming out of the medieval Catholic church, faith and works, was, it was such a confusing issue. And all of a sudden you've got James saying this, but what does James mean? So God said when, the first time he said to Abraham, when, it, when he was still Abram, God said, hey, I'm going to make many nations out of you. As numerous as the stars, I'm covenanting to you. And it says there in, uh, in chapter 15, Genesis 15, and Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? And then later God tests Abram's, uh, Abraham's faith and he says, uh, go sacrifice your son that the promise was supposed to be fulfilled through and Abraham does it and then God says, because you obeyed me, um, I'm reconfirming this thing. Now James condenses, condenses these and he says, um, listen to the phrasing here. And the scripture was fulfilled. So when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that that was fulfilled when Abraham obeyed God in faith. And what you see is that faith, it's not a one-time event in your life. Faith is a daily event. Trusting God is what you do when you follow Jesus and you go, I don't know, I don't know where we're going, Jesus. And I don't know half of what we're doing and why we're doing it. It doesn't quite make sense. My friends, they're all going that way. Or logic or wisdom would go that way. Why, are we, why am I sacrificing my business or my home? Why are you testing? I'll, but I'll trust you. You say, go this way, I'll go this way. You say, say this to this person on a bench uh, in Santa Cruz, I'll say something to that person sitting on the bench in Santa Cruz. You say, serve, I'll serve. You say, um, confess, I'll confess. I just want to be with you. I want to know you and I want to be in harmony with people and I want to know the fullness of joy that comes out of that gospel relationship, the good news that I get to have this relationship with you and I'm trusting you, Jesus, for my salvation. That's why I stay so close to you. I'm right on your heels. I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm trusting you for salvation. So how does this look? How does it work itself out? What do you want me to obey because I'm going to be with you doing what you're doing? Faith is active. 
And it's fulfilled in our obedience. And so we get ourselves into all sorts of kind of confusion when we think that the law is the same as obedience. The law is, is, a, is a, something that people were looking to that basically says, here's the plug-and-play program, the formula. If I take this formula, then I'm going to be good with God. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's not the formula. It's not just because you said the sinner's prayer. If that's just a formula for you, uh, it's not just because you're, it's, it, it's not whatever the formula is. It's your faith in Christ, your trust in Christ, and your willingness to obey the Christ that you're trusting in. Um, we could go there, but I'm just going to summarize. In Hebrews, it says, um, it talks in Hebrews chapter 2 about the Israelites sinning in the desert. And because they sinned in the desert, God punished them. He, he disciplined them. And, and you get this amazing picture, uh, and it says, um, because of their unbelief, they sinned. And there's something fascinating about that. Sin is tied to unbelief or unfaith or not trusting in God. And likewise, what I'm arguing is um, righteousness or goodness or doing good or not sinning, whatever the opposite of sin is. So if sin is, is here with the Russians, um, not sin, okay, comes about through belief in the promises of God. And sin or, or unrighteousness comes about through unbelief in the goodness and in the promises of God. And so what the problem is, is when we tell people, believe in Jesus, but don't do anything. We, we really confuse the natural order of stuff. It's like, you really love that girl? Like, you're enamored with that girl? Yeah, don't, don't do anything. Don't act on that at all. Like, don't move forward. Don't, like, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, passion has the action as part of its natural, appropriate, fitting kind of end. Does it not? And, and so to tell people, get saved, but, but we're not going to talk about any of this obedience or active stuff because then we're, we're actually trusting something else. Like we, we give people nowhere to go other than to be fence sitters. Paul was so radically sold out that it wasn't even funny. He was martyred. Martyred, last time I checked, is a pretty active obedience thing. Last time I checked. It's been a while. Could have changed. Um, Bonhoeffer argues that Luther created a problem in his Lutheran church. So Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. And he's like, so in the 1900s, he's like, so all these hundreds of years later, we got a problem in the Lutheran church, and, it, and here's what happened. This is Bonhoeffer's argument. He says, Luther was radical and sold out and obedient and extreme. He was passionate about Jesus. But he was so worried about the Catholic, medieval Catholic church in the works thing that all of his writings are grace only 
but they don't have the, the passion or the extremism or the sold-outness in it. And he says, so what happened was none of the, the passion of Luther got passed on. Like the, the, look, of course if you're a Christian, you're going to be sold out. Is there any other kind of Christian? You know, like um, none of that got passed on, but the writings got passed on. So, so Bonhoeffer was like, so the problem is, we ended up in the Lutheran church with this cheap grace, which is the grace, but without discipleship. And he says, it would have been good if somehow Luther's life had have ended up in some more of his writings, right? Um, that was Bonhoeffer's kind of argument for it. And so what I'm arguing here is that Paul is trying to give us both. He's trying to give us the full meal that says, we trust in Christ it's an act of faith that comes with obedience to Christ and that all of that is the grace we get from this relationship not trusting in anything else as the way to salvation listen how uh, Paul continues on in chapter 6 brothers if someone is caught in a sin you who are spiritual should restore him gently but watch out yourself or else you may be tempted carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. It's not that, the, it's not that law is bad. It's a law other than the law of Christ is what's bad. You see that? Christ, this path, has, according to Paul, its own law which certainly isn't a distraction or a temptation away from trusting in Christ, is it? Right after Paul got done talking about don't be distracted, who cut in on your race, who got in the way, who, who took the, the beauty of grace away from you, um, he, he, he would so quickly now insert law back in. No, those are two different laws. And he says, if, uh, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. And if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So you can fulfill the law of Christ without becoming spiritually proud. It's the natural thing that a disciple of Jesus does in the joy of being with Christ, but it doesn't diminish the grace of Christ at all. You don't naturally become conceited when you do the law of Christ. Each one should test his own actions, and then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. This is the kind of pride that comes as the natural happiness, joy of being with Christ, not as how you stack up against somebody else. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. Each one carries his own load. And then chapter, uh, verse seven, chapter six, verse seven. Do not be, be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction and the one who sows to please the Spirit, from that Spirit will reap not just happiness, but what? Anyone following along? You don't just reap happiness from keeping in step with the Spirit. When you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Faith is not a one-time thing. Faith is a daily thing where you wake up and say, I'm trusting in you, Christ. I'm looking to you, Holy Spirit, to bring about the good in me. I'm not going to go try and find satisfaction somewhere else. It is a daily journey of discipleship. And if we 
sow, which means we, we practice the flesh, we give to the flesh, we spend time there, we play games, walking in the middle. Whenever we kind of feed this, we're going to reap destruction. But when we follow Christ and we feed this and we put energy here and we're radical like Paul was, I, I don't want to use that word because there's debates around that word right now, um, passionate in love with Christ, sold out to Christ like Paul, like Luther, then we can come over here and this is where we're investing. There was in seminary, um, I don't remember who it was that framed this, but there's a, there's a, a white dog and a black dog on, on each shoulder and they represent um, the spirit and the flesh and they're at war with each other. And the question is, which one's gonna win? And what's the answer? This has, I just realized, Michael Vick has totally changed this analogy for me now. Um, <laughs> which one's going to win in the dogfight? The one you feed. The one you feed. What are you feeding? That, it, he did, didn't he? Michael Vick totally just ruined this. Um, <laughs> the one you're nurturing, the one you're feeding the one you're nurturing, the one you're feeding. Ah. I am amazed at the New Testament, how there are these stories of there being crowds uh, of people and that there's always someone who's so passionate that they, they push through the crowd to get to Jesus. I mean, the dude that got let down through the roof, if you picture it, Jesus is in a small mud house that's so packed and there's a whole mob outside so that you can't even get to the door. Do you know how much dust is in that little house? It's like in, in LA, that would be a keep your kids at home school day, Right? You know how much dust is in that house? And the, the sunlight coming through, you can just see the dust. You can taste the dust. I mean, do you see that? You know how hot it would be in that little house? So much so that these dudes get on top and they destroy property and begin ripping apart the roof so that dust and dirt and everything else is falling in on the people in the house that can't move because it's so crowded. And then they're like, hey, look, look out below. Here comes, here comes Fred, you know. Boom, right on top of Jesus, bullseye. Hey, he needs to be healed, Jesus. Right? Uh, the woman who had the bleeding problem, uh, the hemorrhage, comes to Jesus and pushes through the crowd, touches Jesus, and Jesus is like, someone just touched me. Um, he felt the power leaving from him, and he's like, who touched me? You know what his disciples say? What do you mean who touched you? Like we're in a mob situation right now. Like it is so packed that you've got one of the things that the disciples literally actually did was they were kind of like bodyguards for Jesus. I mean, you can read the New Testament that way. They separate people from Jesus. And they're like crowd control. And they're like, what do you mean? Look at this. 
people are pressing in on all sides. What do you mean, who touched you? She's like, no, somebody touched me. That woman worked her way through, crawled her way through to get to Jesus. And I'm always amazed that when those stories happened, you know how many people were in the crowd? I don't want to be just in the crowd I want to get at Jesus so much that I go past the crowd and I'm so desperate that I'll fight my way. To, I want to be that person. I have good days, bad days, uh, good seasons and bad seasons. But ever since I was 22, like I want to be that person because it's too easy to just be an onlooker. These stories happen in front of us, but do we enter into the story the fruit of the Spirit is a, is a great tweetable, it's a great cliche, but it's meant to be a narrative to jump into. Um, scripture, real quick, it's, especially the Old Testament, it's filled with stories, and there's stories in the Old Testament that you wouldn't believe are in the Old Testament, right? Um, and I do again, uh, there's one um, in, uh, in Genesis, right? So Dinah in the somethingites, right? But she uh, gets abused, and then they, the guys that, that abused her want to take her in marriage, and it's Jacob's sons. You know, this is one of Jacob's daughters, okay? And so they kind of play a ruse, and they're like, sure, we'll give her in marriage to you. Why don't you have all the guys go get circumcised? Because we can't give her to an uncircumcised guy. So all 60 or 80 of that other clan, they all go get circumcised, and right after they do that, it was just a big ploy to like lay them low. And if anybody, um, I, there's nowhere I can go with that either. But they're all down, right? And uh, I had, uh, never mind. Um, and then Jacob's sons come in and kill them all. Like that story is in, in the Bible. It's a wild story. You can read that. Circumcised, you know, killed them all. What's next? You know, and Jesus walked on water. Oh, great. You know, but so one of the things I do when you're reading narrative in Scripture, you have to make it come alive, right? So especially when you're reading the Old Testament, just begin to ask yourself different movie genres. It helps you get in the story. What would this look like if it was a horror movie? Well, it would all be filmed at night, and Jacob's sons would come in, and they would, would kill all the, the ites, um, and then Dinah would become a, a vampire slayer at the end, right? And uh, kill. Or if it was an adventure, Dinah would be this heroine, and everybody would be, she'd be so beautiful, and she would actually be one of the warriors that went in, and, and she would strike the last blow just as one of her older brothers died, but then she would kill the biggest, baddest guy or whatever. Um, what if it was a comedy, right? Well, Vince Vaughn... Um, <laughs> would lead his brothers in and you know what I'm saying um sci-fi it would be Nicolas Cage goes back in a time machine um because there's actually a, a precious metal like a treasure that he had to find and it was about to get lost for all time in this battle where you know what I'm saying but you begin to picture the story Paul says keep in step with the spirit that it's a daily thing of discipleship. 
that we, like branches, can be engrafted into a vine that will give us nourishment, that will lead to fruit and abundance of life, and ultimately we will reap eternal life out of this. It's a story inviting you in. It's a narrative. It's not a cliche or tweetable. It's supposed to be your story to own to be passionate about, to fall in love with, to get up every day with an active living faith and and a joy that says somehow today I can become more the person I want to be. I can get closer to the Savior I love. I can get more excited about my eternity. I can have the better disposition to serve others through love. And every day that's the adventure we inherit. So let's pray. Father, we commit our stories to you. Let us not get caught in some awkward middle as if this is some just formulaic religious thing and not a dynamic relationship that we have with you that we can get excited about that holds the promise of everything that our heart really desires. Help us keep in step with the Spirit. Father, I I pray that the men of this church, when they're asked by their wives to go to church, wouldn't just say yes, but they would, they would look at their wives and say, um, let's join a small group too. Let's get involved and serve too. I, I just pray that, that this church would be filled with passionate people in love with you that are looking to give our lives away, knowing that you're going to fuel all that, that it's your grace It's not our human effort. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.